Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Titus. As I said some time ago, we were going to be going through the book of Titus. Well, today is the day that we start looking at that book. Titus in the first chapter. We're going to be reading the first four verses of the book of Titus. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word this morning? Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and through proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child. In a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Please be seated. Let's go to God in prayer. Please pray for me as I seek to preach this text. Pray for yourselves as you sit on the proclamation of God's word this morning. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, we are very, very needy children of yours. We struggle with our sins, Lord. We find our hearts growing cold toward you, cold toward your word, cold toward one another. So we pray, Lord, that you would, as the hymn says, revive us again. Be with me as I preach this text. Be with your congregation, O Lord, as they hear it. Be with those at home who are watching. And bring this word to bear upon our lives. And so bring change, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. The author of this epistle is the Apostle Paul. As he states in the opening of this letter, he identifies himself in the salutation. Paul wrote 13 of the New Testament books. Um, of those who were, were written, uh, all of them except uh, four written to churches. You had First and Second Timothy and Titus called the pastoral epistles. And then you have one called Philemon, which is written to a man that Paul knew as he sent his slave back to him and encouraged him to treat him as a Christian brother since this man had been converted under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Both Timothy and Titus are in cities left there by the Apostle Paul in order that they may minister to those in the city. Uh, Timothy was left at Ephesus, and of course, as you read through the book of Titus, you know he was left in Crete. Titus was written by Paul's uh, on the fourth missionary journey, likely between A.D. 62 and 64. <clears throat> the book of Titus is a strong emphasis upon doctrine and life, the connection between doctrine and proper Christian conduct. For Paul, and certainly throughout Scripture, these two go hand in hand. Doctrine is to influence and instruct us how we are to live, and in, in a turn, we are supposed to live according to the dictates of Scripture. Uh, it is a work designed to produce grateful Christians and obedient Christians. So this morning, as we begin to look at this, I want to give you the, the um, four points uh, that Alistair Beck has, not that they're the same as mine, not that they're better than mine, they're just different. And the reason I'm giving this to you is so to kind of give you an idea to get a grasp on uh, the, the, what's here in the text. His points are these. Paul's position, 
Paul's purpose, Paul's preaching, Paul's partner. He must not be Presbyterian. He's got four points instead of three. But he is an excellent, excellent preacher, in my opinion. What happens to see this this morning, because of the efficacious, the efficacy to salvation uh, from the Word of God, because of the e- efficacy of salvation from the Word of God preached, the Lord appoints men to the ministry to accomplish that task, as he did appoint the Apostle Paul. So in the first thing, then three points, Paul's call to preaching, Paul's purpose in preaching, and Paul's goal in preaching. In the first thing, then, Paul's call to preaching. You notice uh, that, and we need to understand and remember, that uh, various pastors at various churches throughout the world are called and appointed to them by our God. It's not by chance that men are in the pulpits where they are and men are in the particular cities where they are. We could put it like this. Of all the churches and all the towns and all the world that we walk into, those ministers are called and appointed at that particular time in that particular place. They are called and appointed to it by God. So the Lord is raising up his church throughout the world. We are a microcosm of that here at Southwest. Uh, we are a portion of what is taking place throughout the world and throughout the city. But remembering this, that God is at work always, uh, and he is always blessing and building up his kingdom. Uh, and uh, it is concerned and certainly important what takes place behind the pulpit, uh, what is delivered from the pulpit, and the response of the congregation that hear the word of God read and preach. And even when each church faces various trials and troubles that come along the way, still remember that God is sovereign and God is at work. He is doing something because he always is involved in, he's a hands-on God working in the lives of his people. And what is essential to the church here, if we're going to call it a church, well, the gospel has to be preached. And if the gospel is not preached the gospel of Jesus Christ is missing, then you can't call it a church. And why bother? Why bother to attend a place where the gospel is not being preached? Unless you want to hear pablum, unless you want to be able to feel good about yourself and not good about who you are in Christ and not good about your God, then there are churches in our city that will provide that for you. But I would suggest, if that's where your heart is, uh, that you attend a Tony Robbins conference or go listen to Zig Ziglar. Therefore, you will not bring God's condemnation down upon you for making a mockery and a pretense of worship. If the gospel is not present, it is an insult to call yourself a church and have Christ not even in the place. Man is not called to tell stories. Men are called Preach the gospel. And if that's not being done, then that individual is an ambassador to Satan who is standing behind a pulpit and delivering nothing that closely resembles the gospel. Well, the Apostle Paul is a man called by God. He writes in the first place, he is a servant of God, he says here in the text. Uh, not only does he call himself, this is the only place where he calls himself a servant of God. And the word in Greek here is doulos. It's the same word, or translated word, for slave. Paul is a slave of God, if you will. Uh, again, the only place he refers to himself as in this form, a servant of God. 
But also, he says, uh, he is a, an apostle of Jesus Christ. You know the story of Paul's conversion. He was on the road to Damascus. Uh, he was persecuting the church. He was on his way to arrest Christians and bring them back for trial, putting them in chains. And he was breathing out threats against the disciples of the Lord. Well, while on his way to carry out the task, you know the story. If you don't, I'm going to tell you the story. The Lord appeared to him, a brilliant light. Who are you? I am the Lord. And as you know, the Apostle Paul is converted there, and the Apostle Paul is stricken blind, and he stays that way for three days. And one thing that the Scriptures tell us that's important for us to understand and to remember is this. The evidence of his conversion, when the Lord appears to Ananias, he says this, Behold, he is praying. He is praying. The Apostle Paul, for the first time in his life, is praying a prayer, and God is receiving that prayer because he comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul has been converted on the road to Damascus. Uh, he is called out to God, and God sends this man, Ananias, and this man, Ananias, lays hands on him, and Paul receives his sight. He becomes a, one of the greatest evangelists the church has ever seen if not the greatest evangelist the church has ever seen throughout its years of existence. Well, Paul is an apostle. An apostle is one who is called by the risen Lord into service of our king. Called by the risen Lord, as the apostle Paul was called by the risen Lord on the road to Damascus. Well, uh, similar to Romans 1, 1, Paul is servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, and they receive the doctrine from him. To be a servant of God is to be a servant of Christ. To be a servant of Christ is to be a servant of God. And recognize the great grace here in the life of the Apostle Paul. We could ask ourselves, what did he deserve? Uh, he was a man who hated Christians. He was a man who hated the church. He was a man who was prosecuting Christians, putting them to death. He was a man who stood idly by, not idly by, actually approving of the stoning of Stephen. Remember, it says that the Apostle Paul watched the cloaks of those who stoned Stephen. And stoning is not taking up pebbles and tossing them to someone. Usually they were very close, and they picked up big rocks and threw them. Just think about somebody standing five feet from you with a big rock in their hand and throwing it at you as hard as they can and hitting you in the head with it. That's what it meant to be stoned to death. Well, the Apostle Paul not simply watched, but he approved of the stoning of this man, Stephen the first martyr in the Christian church. Well, the Lord did not deal with the Apostle Paul according to his just deserts. Our God dealt with him according to his great grace, as our God deals with us, not according to our just deserts, not by any means, because we deserve the same thing the Apostle Paul deserves, or deserved, and that is God's wrath and condemnation. But God dealt with him according to his grace, 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 God's grace, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. And so that by God's working, we stand before him approved through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the same thing is true for all of us. And be grateful to God and for your conversion, for your salvation. Be grateful and faithful because of what God has done for you, pulling you out of the mire, out of the muck out of condemnation and wrath to come into a relationship with himself, whereby we are able to call him Father, and he calls us his sons and daughters. 
Well, the calling of the Apostle Paul is to be profitable to the church, for the good of the church. Notice how the Apostle Paul puts it here, the purpose of his calling. He has been called for the sake of God's elect. There's that doctrine. That's not a Presbyterian doctrine. It is a biblical doctrine. Now, what is the doctrine of election? Lorraine Bettner says this, It is the eternal, absolute, immutable, effective determination of God to save a people uh, of his choosing out of the fallen race. That election is pictured for us in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 and 9, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It is not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the land, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So God chose Abraham. And God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis and the 12th chapter. Uh, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And all the world will be, be blessed through you and through your seed. That seed ultimately the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how do we understand them? Because in the Old Testament, if they were God's chosen people, as Charles commented earlier, again and again, they rebelled against God. Again and again, they dishonored God. Again and again, they grumbled and complained, as Charles said just a moment ago. They even fell into worshiping Moloch. And there, they sacrificed their children to this God in an attempt to determine and control their future. Well, if they were God's chosen people, if they were the elect of God in the Old Testament, how are we to understand that rebellion. The nation of Israel was a picture or type of election, a picture of the election of the true church. The Apostle Paul in Romans uh, and the ninth chapter, six, six, six through nine, says this uh, as he answered the question, How is it that Israel rebelled? He says this It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who were descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all who were descended from Abraham belong to God. And not all the children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of flesh that are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So we see there was no spiritual benefit per se from being descended from Abraham. You weren't automatically saved. You weren't automatically a part of the church, the true church. Again, the church was contained within the nation of Israel, but not everybody in the nation of Israel was a member of the true church. That's what Paul says. Just because they came from Abraham does not mean at all that they're converted. You can't be converted when you're worshiping a false god and sacrificing your children to that god. There's no evidence of faith in the true God there whatsoever, but actually evidence of lack of faith and evidence of really ungodly heart and a very, very ungodly mind as well. Well, election uh, is taught throughout the scriptures, again, pictured in the Old Testament with the calling of Israel, but then clearly taught in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, you shall bear a son. 
You should call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And I think you have heard me say this before. Sinclair Ferguson came to a reformed position by hearing a man read this text. And he said he gave the his an emphasis he was sure he did not intend. He should call his name Jesus. His name, Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. Romans 8, 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect, exiles of the dispersion of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of his blood. Ephesians 1, 11 and 13. In him we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things out according to the counsel of his will. And everybody knows the Ephesians text, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. Well, then we have this, this election is entirely of God's good pleasure. He chooses people because he loves them. And it's not God looking into the future and seeing who would come to faith and choosing those people. That's not what it is. That makes work. That makes faith a work, you see. If God looked into the future to see who would embrace him in faith and chose those people who would in and of themselves, by their own determination, come to Christ, it makes faith a work. But it's God looking from eternity past and determining the people to save for himself. What does it say in Jeremiah 31.3? I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you to myself in loving kindness. There was a book that, that uh, I think it was on Covenant's table years ago when I was doing my internship there called Love Before Time. And that's what election is. It's love before time. Not that we deserve God's affection. We don't. Not that God uh, owes us that affection. He doesn't. It is simply his own loving kindness and good pleasure. Well, then we have the objections. Well, that's not fair. Uh, you have someone desperate to come to Christ. But because he's not been chosen by God, he, he can't do it. No one who is not elect of God has any desire to come to Christ. None whatsoever. And God leaves them by what they are by nature, having a heart that is dead in trespasses and sins, having a, a, a mindset that is hostile to Christ and the gospel. Romans 9, Paul says this, What shall we say then? Is there injustice with God? The same thing we deal with today. Is there injustice with God? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exhortation, but on God who has mercy. For the scriptures, it says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, and I will show you my power in you, and, you, and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And this is what Paul says. <laughs> who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? God has the right to make of the same clay one vessel of honor and another one of dishonor if he chooses to do so. So it's for the sake of the elect that the apostle Paul has been called, the sake of those who are in the church. And he says here, he was called for the sake of the faith of God's elect. For the sake of the faith of God's elect. In other words, Paul's labors were to aid the faith of the elect of God. It was to build them up. 
and strengthen them in the faith. All that Paul did in relation to his calling was to encourage and build up the church. All that he did. You remember what is Paul writes to Timothy. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Exhort, rebuke, correct. That was the purpose of Timothy. That's the purpose of Paul. That the man in the pulpit is to bring forth the word of God for the good of the congregation of Christ. For the building up of their faith and strengthening of their faith. And that comes to us by the proclamation of the word. The primary means of grace in the life of the Christian is the proclamation of the word of God. The primary means of grace. And how we should take advantage of it, how we should treasure it, how we should take opportunity to sit and hear the Word of God read and to hear the Word of God preached. Because our hearts so often grow tired. Our hearts so often grow indifferent to the own sin in our lives and to the sin around us. And it is that by that exposure to the proclamation of the Word of God that our hearts are lanced. And we come to repentance. We come again to embrace Christ And have our love rekindled for the Savior and for His church. It was with reference to the strengthening of the faith of the congregation that He was called to the ministry. Jesus Christ said, John 17, 17, that was one of our memory verses. Anybody remember it? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so it was Paul's mission then was to give them the truth of God's word in order that they may be established in the faith. And don't ever say this. Don't ever say doctrine doesn't matter. I've had people say that to me before. Doctrine is not important. It's important to God. It's important to Christ. And it has to be important to us. Doctrine is what we believe. Does it matter what you believe about Christ? It does indeed matter what you believe about Christ. Does it matter what you believe about the gospel? Indeed, it matters what you believe about the gospel. It matters very, very much, we believe, about the gospel. So it is that uh, knowledge is important. He was called for the faith. He was called for the sake of the knowledge of the truth. Paul is to proclaim that word to them. And this knowledge of truth accords with godliness. What is godliness? It is really being like Christ. That's what godliness is. It's being like the Lord Jesus. Being conformed to his image. Then we can look at our hearts and say, how much like Christ are we today? How much are we really like the Lord Jesus? That knowledge of the truth, of course, to godliness, it is, of course, to be be like Christ. Esther Begg said this, it is a knowledge that travels from head to heart. And remember what the Apostle Paul said about the gospel, this knowledge of the truth, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says this in Corinthians, Second Corinthians in the fourth chapter. We hold this treasure in earthen vessels. So the gospel then is a treasure that we have. We should treasure. And we should seek to incorporate every aspect of it in our, every aspect of our life. Well, uh, this knowledge of the truth, we may say, is a transforming knowledge. The knowledge of the gospel is a transforming knowledge in that it takes us from being one who is outside of a faith of relationship with God 
to bring us into the family. Once we embrace Christ by faith, men, what must we do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, and you shall be saved. And I love that for the promises for you and for your children and all who are afar off. It is a transforming knowledge in our conversion, bringing us into the safe haven of redemption. It is also a practical knowledge. It teaches us how to live. It teaches us how to think. It teaches us how to relate to one another in families. It teaches us how to relate to one another in the church. It teaches us what kind of person we should be at work. It teaches us about forgiveness. It teaches us about rejoicing in the salvation we have in Christ. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And so that it is rejoicing in the Lord. It is rejoicing in the Lord in COVID. It is rejoicing in the Lord in cancer. Is rejoicing in the Lord in trials. Because the source of our joy, the source of our happiness, the source of our contentment is Christ. Our heart should swell with gratitude as we reflect upon this. So it is a practical knowledge as well. Some of you may have seen that movie, uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Great, great John Wayne film. Uh, Jimmy Stewart plays in it. Lee Marvin, Strother Martin, Lee Van Cleef, uh, several people that are well known in the film industry. Well, John Wayne was in love with a woman, and it turned out she fell in love with Jimmy Stewart. John Wayne had built a house and built a room for her. He thought they were going to get married. Well, he drinks himself into a state of mind of foolishness. And he goes in and he burns the house down with himself inside of it. He starts it on fire. And his uh, fellow that worked for him goes in and pulls him out of the fire and saves his life. Whenever we fail to be what God calls us to be, we're burning the church. Whenever we fail to be repentant, whenever we fail to seek after godliness and righteousness, it is, we are to be Christ-like, we burn the church. Because we're basically saying to God, I don't care that much. I want my sin. And you're going to forgive me for it anyway. So I'm going to hold on to it. That's not a Christian speaking. That's someone who's hardened their heart against the gospel and against Christ. We are called to godliness. It ain't easy. I was thinking the other day that Christian life is not an easy life to live. If we're going to be consistent, it's the only life worth living, don't get me wrong, but it's not easy. Because we don't live for ourselves, we live for Christ. And that's not an easy thing to do. Our sin revolts God. We cannot rationalize it away. We cannot excuse it. It is revolting to him. And as dear, dear Bill Combs said one evening, he takes our sin personally. We are great sinners, but we have a great Savior who always welcomes us. What an amazing, talk about amazing grace. 
He always welcomes us, no matter how much we've messed up. He welcomes us and receives us and embraces us. Let's pray.